0: This is the InFocus Podcast from The Hindu. Welcome to another episode of The Hindu's InFocus Podcast. I'm Zubeda Hamid, your host for today. For at least a year and a half now, most of us have relegated COVID-19 to the back of our minds. Cases of the virus had drastically reduced, it was not mentioned in headlines anymore, and life seemed to have got somewhat back to normal. It's difficult, however, to ignore the news of yet another coronavirus mutation. This latest subvariant, JN.1, a descendant of the Omicron variant that caused the third wave in India, has been classified by the World Health Organization as a variant of interest. It's led to a rapid rise in cases across countries, including in India, which has seen a surge in cases over the past few days. As of December 27th, a total of 109 cases of JN.1 have been detected in the country, active COVID-19 cases now stand at over 4,000 and several deaths have been reported over the past few days. The WHO, however, has said that the risk to public health is low and this has been echoed by the Union Health Ministry in India, which has said that JN.1 is not a cause of immediate concern. With winter having set in across North India, pollution levels on the rise, and respiratory infections doing the rounds, do we need to be worried? Is this subvariant more infectious than previous va- variants? Does it have higher vaccine escape properties? Would a booster shot of the vaccine help? And do we need to mask up again? Dr. Soumya Swaminathan, Chairperson of the MS Swaminathan Research Foundation and former Chief Scientist of the World Health Organization, joins us today to explore these questions. Welcome to the Hindus in Focus podcast, Dr. Somya.
1: Hello, nice to talk to you, Zubeda.
0: Dr. Somya, tell us why the JN.1 subvariant has been classified by the WHO as a variant of interest. How does the WHO do these classifications and why? So, as you know,
1: the WHO, uh, in the first year of the COVID pandemic, set up this system of uh, virus... Uh, classification because uh, it was became clear after some time that the mutations uh, were happening that was expected, of course. And scientists were actually able to do experiments in the laboratory, but also through clinical observations to correlate the impact of each mutation in terms of either increasing the infectiousness and the transmissibility of the virus, Or having a change in symptoms and signs towards more severity or less severity, and um, also correlating the mutations with the escape from uh, the antibody responses or the immune responses. And uh, therefore, it became very clear that uh, this was quite a complex situation with a lot of analytics needed. And therefore, a technical advisory group on virus evolution. Was set up to study uh, as uh, there was ongoing evolution of the virus. And also, every time there was a cluster of cases or there were some new findings reported from scientists' labs, to try to correlate it with what was happening with the genetic makeup of the virus. So, this is what actually then resulted in uh, the whole concept of variants under monitoring, variants of interest, and variants of concern and so this is a sort of systematic way uh, of triaging and looking at a new variant let's say there's a change in the mutations uh, or there's a new cluster of mutations that are being observed that would become a variant under monitoring. A variant uh, of interest would be something that is uh, reported in multiple countries is, con- is increasing uh, in terms of the prevalence. That means that it is outcompeting the previous uh, variants. And also if it has any mutations that are uh, indicating a change in its behavior. And then obviously a variant of concern is something where you have definitive evidence of increased transmissibility or increased severity or potential escape from immunity uh, natural immunity as well as vaccine derived immunity so if there is a public health risk that is considered to be moderate or high then it would become you know a variant uh, of concern so currently we have the JN.1 variant which is classified as a independent variant of interest and and because it says independent because it's uh, they've kind of separated it from its parent that is the ba point So that's where we are now.
0: The Union Health Ministry has said that as of now, there is no need to panic in the sense that this is a variant of interest, but it is not going to cause, does not look like it's going to cause increased hospitalization or more severe disease. Is that what it looks like, doctor? This is not going to really cause a wave of the devastating kind that we had with Delta.
1: So obviously, I think that we're in a very different situation than we were in other early part of 2021 when we experienced the Delta wave. At that time, immunization programs had just started globally as well as in India. So most people still had not received a vaccine and some people had received one dose of the vaccine. And uh, therefore, it was a very highly susceptible population. And when Delta came with its uh, potential for increased transmissibility, what happened is that many, many, many people got infected. There was no underlying immunity and therefore a significant proportion got sick and ended up in the hospital. And, you know, there was also significantly higher death at that time. Now, after that, through 2021, obviously vaccination programs scaled up significantly. By the end of 21, we saw, you know, very high level of uh, coverage in India. And, um, Subsequently, when we experienced Omicron, the experience was very different, mainly because of the underlying immunity that had been created in the population. And therefore, people got infected. Many, many people got infected. A very large proportion of people actually around the world and in India were infected by Omicron. But it did not result in the kind of hospitalizations and deaths that we saw with Delta. So... People say it's also because the virus was less severe, but I think that the main difference was actually the host immunity or the human factor that we had built up uh, immunity. Now, we are at least two years uh, where Omicron has been the dominant strain circulating around the world. Of course, there have been sub-variants of Omicron. Even this uh, JN.1 is still within the Omicron family, except that it's acquired some new mutations. The same thing holds holds true in the sense that the population has been vaccinated. A lot of people have had both infection before or after vaccination. Therefore, we have hybrid immunity. And it appears that the vaccines uh, that we received then are still protecting us from getting severely ill. At least that is what the initial observations we can see from JN.1 That while a lot of people are getting infected, there are some surges happening in different parts of the world. Many countries have reported an upsurge of cases and also many states in India. Of course, testing has also increased. So sometimes, you know, we get uh, fixated onto the numbers that are being reported on a daily basis. But that's a function of testing. The more you test, the more you will find. So I don't think we should really get uh, scared or panicky by the numbers But really, we have to pay attention to what percentage of people are getting hospitalized are requiring oxygen or ventilation, you know, and what is the mortality. And as of now, it is still uh, quite low. Most people are having a mild infection, are recovering at home itself. Um, But still, we need to correlate this data, particularly for those who do get hospitalized. I think we need to study to see whether it's a function of waning immunity. Um, or it's a function of other factors that are making them making them sick. And that will help us actually to plan, you know, for the future. So what I would say is at this time in India, we're seeing what other countries have seen, a surge of cases mainly being driven by JN.1, because that's actually out all the previous strains. You know, it's, it's much more efficient in transmitting, but we are not at the moment seeing uh, a huge increase in uh, very ill people or needing hospitalization. So we have to be watchful. We should still try to minimize the transmission of COVID. But uh,
0: I think there's there's really no need to panic. There has been some debate, Dr. Soumya, about whether or not a booster would be useful. It's been almost, it's been over a year and a half since most people in India during the mass vaccination program received their shots, COVID-19 vaccine shots. Would a booster at this point help or because we still have the same vaccines available, we don't have anything new, would it be not be of much use?
1: So this is a good uh, question and eventually it needs to be answered through the generation of data. Now, most of the vaccines we have available in India are uh, made from the original strain of SARS-CoV-2, which was obtained in right at the beginning in 2020. But there are a couple of vaccines, notably the Genova mRNA vaccine that does have uh, a product that was made with uh, the XPV 1.5 strain. And you also have the CovoVax or the Novavax, which is made by Biological E, which is also an updated uh, vaccine. Um, And as we know in the US and UK, The boosters are being recommended using the updated vaccines. Now, the WHO, in its recommendations, had said that, you know, both vaccines, the original strain and the updated strain, still continue to provide good protection, so either can be used depending on availability. Whether we need boosters now, and if so, who needs those boosters? Again, is going to depend on our epidemiological and, and clinical observations. And it's really important to uh, generate that data on people getting admitted, people who are getting sick, and and studying their uh, immune responses. We know that antibodies wane with time, so antibody levels go down. But we know that these vaccines also stimulated another part of the immune system, which is the cell mediated immunity, uh, what we call the T cells. And that immunity, the memory, lasts much longer. So probably that's what's helping us now because the vaccines generated not only the antibody or the B cell responses, but also stimulated the T cells, which are providing us this longer lasting immunity. Now, COVID is going to stay around with us. And so this is something we need to expect to happen uh, every few months. And we do see these cyclical uh, upsurge, which usually corresponds to a variant or a subvariant, and in the future, if there may be uh, at some point a need to provide boosters to people, let's say over a certain age, or people who have underlying uh, weak immune system because of other illnesses, um, that those decisions need to be actually driven by the data, and the data needs to come, you know, from the country itself because our demographics and uh, environmental conditions are different from what you know we might see in the US or any other country so i think that kind of policy decision has to be driven by the data at this point of time because we're still initially experiencing the jn.1 the initial uh, observations seem to suggest that it is not causing severe disease we are not seeing a big burden of hospitalizations um there is no immediate uh, i think need to To move with boosters. However, having said that, there are deaths being reported, there are people getting sick, so that means that there are vulnerable people in the community who might benefit, you know, from having a boost of their uh, immune system. So I think it's a decision that uh, needs to be based on on the ongoing uh, epidemiology. But as I said, there are enough vaccines that are made in India, both with the original strain as well as with uh, the updated strain that was recommended by the WHO some time ago. Uh, And so we have options available in the country.
0: One of the areas of concern with JN.1 has been the vaccine escape property, or that's what early research seems to suggest. Tell us what this means, doctor. So, whenever there is a mutation, a change in the virus,
1: uh, usually in the surface protein that enables it to uh, to evade uh, the antibodies, that's what makes it more transmissible, and so it's able to infect us despite the fact that we might have uh, antibodies uh, to the you know which were generated by a previous strain of the of the virus. So it's it's able to uh, enter the human cells uh, because of this minor change that it's brought about. Uh, however, once having entered, you know, the anti-the-there's the antibody response and there's also, like I said, the T cell mediated response, which will help the body to fight this virus and battle this virus. And so as uh, till now, uh, the changes in the virus or the mutations have not been able to completely overcome or evade the cell-mediated immune responses. And this is why we say that the vaccines are still protective. In the future, if they are able to do that as well, then we might get to a point where our vaccines are no longer working. But luckily for us, we're not at that point. And the current strains of the virus which are circulating... Uh, are also more transmissible, so they are avoiding our antibody responses, but they are still being contained by the other arms of the immune system.
0: Tell us a little bit about how the country needs to prepare. prepare. We know that the Union Health Ministry has already told states to be alert in case there is a surge in cases and to monitor severe acute respiratory infections and influenza-like illnesses. Do we also need to step up our genomic surveillance? There are many things that
1: uh, need to be done to be in a state of preparedness, not just to tackle COVID, but also to tackle uh, any other uh, new infections or emerging infections, which may have outbreak or epidemic or pandemic potential. And this is why I think all countries, including India, you know, are now talking about pandemic preparedness. Now t- to be prepared, And to have a good response essentially means that you have to strengthen the systems within the health system. So whether this is uh, surveillance, so collecting data from the cases of pneumonia that are admitted, doing other kinds of sentinel surveillance, and really using that data. So this will include, of course, genomic surveillance. And it also includes new uh, modalities like wastewater surveillance which has been used in the past for polio, for example. But a city like Bangalore is now using wastewater surveillance to give it some advance notice of an impending increase in cases. So they saw in the wastewater in Bangalore, for example, the last couple of weeks, the viral load in the wastewater has been going up. It's gone up almost three times. And so they believe that many more people in the community are infected now than they were. Three weeks ago, so these types of new tools that we now know can be used to do surveillance, not just for COVID again, but again, this technology can be used to monitor other bacterial and viral infections as well. So I think India is in a very good position. We have good genomic capacity in the both public and private sector. It's a question of uh, firstly creating those consortia like the Insacog, but also linking uh, this in real time with public health action. So the data that's being collected and analyzed is only going to be useful if it is used to inform public health action. So I think that's a good example of where very uh, specific uh, intervention using technology can be used to notify or to uh, alert public health officials that there could be a problem and that they need to respond. The second is, I think, strengthening our health system's Right down to our primary health care centers, our health and wellness centers, uh, whether it is training of staff so that they know what to do. If they, let's see, you know, a community health worker uh, or a VHN in a remote area observes, you know, that she's seeing three or four cases of pneumonia in her jurisdiction in a village or in neighboring villages or that there's a sudden outbreak of a fever with rash, which uh, is unusual out of the blue you know, they need to know what exactly they should do. What's the reporting line? What's the action to be taken? Uh, Where do you isolate? Who do you isolate? Uh, Does the person need more intense evaluation? You know, is there lab samples that need to be collected? So these are protocols that uh, need to be put in place and are in place, but the training of healthcare workers down to the periphery. But also the community uh, part of it is important. Communities also need to become involved and engaged in these kind of, so that if there is something strange happening in the community that they feel is out of the ordinary, it could be a waterborne infection, it could be a borne, it could be airborne, they need to connect with the health system. And then, of course, there needs to be the supply chain. As we know, uh, oxygen, for example, is uh, an important commodity that uh, we recognize that every health center needs to have access to oxygen to provide emergency relief. Similarly, there are essential drugs, diagnostics, vaccines. You know, India has a list of essential diagnostics, as well as essential drugs. We need to ensure that those are available uh, in different places, um, like anti-rabies, for example, you know, or anti-snake venom. These are all things which can save lives. But if they're not available in the places, especially in rural centers where people get bitten in the middle of the night by a snake, you know, then it becomes difficult to save that, that person. So it's availability of these essential products in the right place at the right time, the training of the staff, so they know how to use it. So all of this actually can come under what we call you know, health system uh, strengthening, plus the public health. I think every state in India really needs to have a public health cadre. This was uh, laid out in the, in the National Health Policy of 2017, but it has not yet happened and uh, this is a its a boon, not only for facing pandemics, but for public health action. I think having a public health guarder, actually, uh, they, they think and act differently than, you know, let's say an academic uh, doctor who's working in a medical college hospital or in an academic center. So there are many aspects of public health where the actions are outside the uh, the health department. So, you know, it could be in sanitation, it could be in housing, it could be in uh, uh, attention to diet and nutrition or to the air quality. Uh, these are all important determinants of disease. And uh, infections also thrive, you know, when we have circumstances which favor their uh, their transmission. So this is why I think a public, a good, strong public health um, cadre in the country empowered with... Uh, experts of different different uh, backgrounds and the ability to work with other departments and other sectors in order to reduce the uh, possibility of these type of uh, infections particularly zoonotic infections in the future I think that's going to be an important threat and this is why we talk about one health today because one health actually is trying to bring together a human animal, and uh, environmental factors so that, you know, everybody can be healthy. So I think that's the kind of uh, multi-sectoral action that we need, actually, for us, uh, you know, to remain healthy. Um, so the COVID pandemic gave us an opportunity to understand some of these things and to to start investing in and strengthening some of these systems. But rather than stay narrowly focused on COVID, I think we should make this opportunity to... Uh, expand are uh, the ways in which we can minimize the impact of infectious diseases right because people die of tuberculosis, people die of influenza and those are equally important. So if our goal is to minimize mortality and morbidity, then I think our systems also need to become little more broader and, and more uh, and holistic rather than you know working in silos.
0: Last question, doctor. Do we need to mask up again, especially as winter has set in in many parts of the country? There's pollution, there are respiratory infections doing the round. Would it be wiser for you, for most people to put on the masks again? So
1: we know now that masks do protect us. And of course, there are different types of masks with uh, starting with the N95s and then the surgical masks and then the cloth masks reducing levels of protection. But they all protect both The individual as well as the person. We also protect others. So, for example, if you have a cold and cough and you wear a mask, you are minimizing the risk of spreading it to people around you. Similarly, if you're wearing a mask, then you're minimizing the risk of catching an infection from someone who may be sitting next to you and coughing. So, I think everybody needs to assess their own risk. Now, if you're above... Let's say if you're above 60 or 65, if you're a healthcare worker who's constantly seeing patients or if, you know, any other kind of frontline worker where you're in close contact with the community and with people coming to you all the time. If you are going to be spending considerable time in a closed setting where the ventilation may not be too good and you're spending time there, it's crowded and there are many other people. Some of them are coughing, you know, it's a season for uh, respiratory infections. Having a mask on in such situations does protect you. And like I said, it can protect others if you're the one who's sick. So I think it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, you see many countries in Eastern Asia have been using masks for a long time to protect communities from respiratory infection. So every time you get into a flu season, everybody puts their masks on, you know, and practices respiratory hygiene and hand washing. You can really bring down the burden of illness in the community. So I think that's the way that we should look at it as well. Um, and like now we know that there's a surge in COVID. There's also a surge in other respiratory infections. Uh, there's increasing air pollution, you know, in large parts of the country that also predisposes to infections. It's a good idea to wear a mask. Uh, but again, you could uh, wear it only when you're in a setting where you consider yourself at risk, or if you're a high-risk individual, then. You know, it's a good idea to wear it whenever you go out. Many states have, I think, asked, at least in healthcare settings, that everyone should be masked. Again, that's a very good practice so that healthcare workers don't get sick and they also don't spread the infection to other people. So I think some practices are just common sense that people can use uh, to protect themselves and their families, you know, when the situation uh, demands.
0: Thank you so much for speaking to us today, Dr. Somya. Thank you. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.